Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market welcome to the new books network so hello, everyone, and welcome to All for One and One for All public seminar series on mental health in academia and society. All for One and One for All talks shine the light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from student to faculty, as well as in wider society. Seminars are held online once per month on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Lausanne time and are free for all to attend. Speakers include academics, organizations and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk. And for live webinar schedule, please visit Lashua Lab website and follow us on Twitter at Lashua Lab. Also, feel free to post your questions and thoughts throughout our webinar, starting right from the beginning, and we will share them with our speaker and we'll try to get through as many as we can. And today, we're happy to welcome Dr. Wendy Suzuki, and Dr. Hilal Lashuel will introduce her. Thank you, Galina. So um, there is no doubt that we live in times where anxiety and stress have become da daily experiences for many of us. For most of us, the terms fear, stress, anxiety are associated with negative emotions and life experiences. We see anxiety as the enemy that disrupts our peace, sleep, and social interactions, and the normal flow of our lives and emotions. Studies have consistently shown that anxiety is a major risk factor for many mental and physical disorders. These are emotions that can also change how we feel about who we are and our self-worth. But what if these emotions are not what they seem? What if we have misunderstood them for years? What if they exist to protect us? And what if they can be, what if we can harness the power of these emotions for good, to improve our well-being, to unleash our creativity, and to live a better life? Yes, this is possible. Our guest speaker today, Professor Wendy Suzuki, will tell us how to achieve this, and will share with us some of the tools and tricks that we can use not only to dial down the level of stress and anxiety, but also to teach us how we can make it work for us. Her work shows that learning how to reconnect with ourselves and understanding the values that shape how we deal with these emotions are essential first steps to reap some of the benefits that come from having an optimum level of anxiety or what she calls good anxiety. Now allow me to formally introduce our speaker, Professor Wendy Suzuki, 
He's an award-winning neuroscientist and a professor of neural science and psychology at New York University, where she studies the effect of physical activity and mediation on the brain. Her major research interest continues to be brain plasticity. She's best known for her extensive work studying areas in the brain critical for our ability to form and retain new long-term memories. More recently, her work has focused on understanding how aerobic exercise can be used to improve learning, memory, and higher cognitive abilities in humans. She's a best-selling author of the book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, that was also made into a PBS uh, special. Her TED Talk on the brain-changing benefits of exercise has more than 7.7 million views. Her second book, which is the subject of her lecture today, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most, most Misunderstood Emotion, was published in the fall of 2021. And she's been working on it way before the, the pandemic started. She's very passionate, a thought leader, spreading the understanding of how we can use the principles of brain's plasticity to maximize our brain's performance and to transform our lives for the better. I also would like to take this opportunity to congratulate her on her new appointment as the Cyril Kushner Dean of the College of Art of Sciences at New York University. And I just told her how lucky her students and faculty are. Thank you for being with us, uh, Professor Suzuki. It's really an honor to have you with us today. Thanks. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. So I'm so happy to be here and um, want to address uh, and have a discussion for the next hour about how we can um, really do a karate jujitsu kind of move on this emotion that so many of us are feeling feeling at higher levels these days, and that is the emotion of anxiety. But before I get started, I wanted to start with kind of just leveling the playing field, uh, um, uh, focusing everybody together and giving some definitions. And I'm gonna start my slideshow right now. Um, let's see. And the star of our show today is this right here. This is a preserved, human brain. Um, oops. This is a preserved human brain. Um, her name is Betty. She lives in my lab in New York University. Uh, I bring her out. I think she is uh, uh, the most photographed preserved human brain, uh, at least on the East Coast of the United States. But, you know, th this is what we're, we're, we're focused on. How do we make this structure really the most complex structure known to humankind? How do we make it work better. Just uh, to orient you uh, in case you're not uh, in the field of neuroscience, I know there's lots of different um, fields uh, represented here. Um, this is the frontal lobe. Your forehead is right uh, in front of here. Here's the back, the occipital lobe where all vision takes place. Um, and here's the temporal lobe. Deep in the temporal lobe here is my favorite structure of the brain called the hippocampus critical for our ability to learn and retain new long-term memories for facts and events, also referred to as declarative memory, um, and also uh, um, essential for imagination, a critical element in creativity. So how do we make this 
work better? And why are we interested in this uh, relative to anxiety? Because anxiety at high chronic levels not only makes these brain areas work worse, particularly the prefrontal cortex, it uh, taps your ability, it, it re uh, removes your ability to focus your attention on those things that need to be focused on. It also impairs your decision-making process, but it also impairs your memory processes as well. And with long-term stress and anxiety, you get actual damage of these two brain areas that I've been pointing out, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So um, let me start with uh, the question of the moment. I, I named my book, Good Anxiety. And you're probably thinking, how can anxiety be good? Anxiety is not good. And so, oops, sorry. I wanted to uh, start with my definition. Why do I say anxiety is good? I say that anxiety is good because the emotion of anxiety and the underlying physiological stress response that always comes with it evolved to actually protect us. Now, let me take you back. It's easier to understand this. If you think back 2.5 million years, uh, imagine there is a uh, young female with a newborn gathering food and she hears the crack of a twig that immediately uh, um, um, uh, stimulates anxiety and that also then stimulates the physiological stress response, that fight or flight response. Um, and uh, what does that do? Well, that serves a really, really protective, useful purpose. It actually gets your body ready to either run away or to fight. Those were the dangers that we had to deal with 2.5 million years ago when this emotion and this stress response evolved. And so at that time, absolutely critical for our survival, very, very protective. So then you could say, okay, theoretically, uh, academically, I could understand that, but I still don't feel protected at all by my own feelings of anxiety. And all I can say is I understand you, I feel you, I know I'm in the same boat as you. And the reason for that is that our uh, anxieties are turned up very, very high because we don't have the dangers of the lions or the tigers or the bears coming at us, but instead anything that is of potential uncertainty uh, that includes the 24-7 news cycles, that includes Instagram feeds, that includes um, existential crises about war and planetary health that um, also are on the news feed all the time. All of those items that you can imagine, or thesis being due, oh my gosh, I have tenure, my tenure packet is due. All of these things, just like the lion and the tiger and the bear for that young woman 2.5 million years ago, will stimulate anxiety and that stress response. So it's like we have lions and tigers and bears coming at us all the time. So um, the first thing we need to do is learn how, in my, in my plan of getting to good anxiety, is to learn to turn the volume down on our anxiety. And I really spent a lot of time talking about this in the book. I think these approaches are so valuable. And I give you three, and we're going to go through uh, the, the logic and the science of all these three. But the whole third part of the book is called How to Worry Well, and gives you lots and lots of um, um, ideas 
so that you can start to apply it in your life today. So my goal is you walk away with not just some interesting new ideas, but things that you can do to start to transform your bad anxiety, the kind that you want to just get rid of, into what you will come to understand is good anxiety. So how do we turn the volume down and what is the neuroscience and the psychology underlying that? So the first way and my go-to when people say, I just need some help right now, is breath work. Slowing down your breath is one of the best ways to um, uh, decrease the volume on your anxiety. Why? Let me remind you, and I know some of the um, uh, uh, physiology students, um, physiology students will, um, let's see, sorry. The physiology students will already understand this. Oh, yeah, okay. Physiology students will already understand this. The breath work is working on the autonomic nervous system. Everybody that's been in a physiology class or a neuroscience class has gone through this. You've seen, okay, to memorize the terms, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Well, um, some of you may know the sympathetic nervous system, that is that fight or flight nervous system. It is an automatic part of our nervous system controlled by the hypothalamus and uh, the, the neurons involved in this are situated up and down the spinal cord you can see here. Where do they go? They are controlling all the rest of our peripheral body. What does the fight or flight system do when it is activated? Well, it uh, opens up your eyes. It, it, it uh, brings more light so you can pay attention to all the dangers out there. It um, increases your respiration rate. It increases your heart rate and it shunts blood away from your digestion and reproductive organs out to your muscles so you can fight or flight. That is physiologically what is happening. But did you know, and I'm sure you did, but did you realize that you have every single one of us, not some, you know, don't have it very much. We all have an equal and opposite part of the autonomic nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system shown on this side of the slide over here. And what does it do? It completely does the opposite thing to the sympathetic nervous system. In fact, it's called the rest and digest part of the nervous system, despite the fact that most of us don't talk about it, we're not aware of it. Somehow we've all focused on fight or flight. I ask uh, general public audiences all over the country, have you heard of my country, the United States? Have you heard of fight or flight? Yes, everybody. Have you heard of rest and digest? Mm, handful. This is so important because what it's doing is it is your natural de-stressing system. It is um, slowing your respiration rate down automatically. It is slowing your heart rate down and it's um, shunting blood from your muscles towards your digestion and reproductive organs. So you can, it's called the weekend system. You could digest that delicious brunch uh, or those delicious meals that you have on the weekend. So um, once we are aware that, oh, that's, that's happening, um, instead of worrying so much about my fight or flight system, why oh, I, I should be asking, how can I activate my parasympathetic nervous system? So look here, we have very little conscious control over this. I can't consciously um, shunt my blood from my muscles towards my digestion and reproductive organs. However, what I can do at any moment in time 
is slow my breathing down. That is part of this parasympathetic response. And it is the best conscious way to kind of get the whole parasympathetic uh, nervous system working is to consciously breathe slowly and deeply. If you ask, what is my kind of go-to um, for the parasympathetic nervous system to activate it, it is what I call a boxed breathing approach. So um, I like it because it's easy to understand. There's four parts to it. There's four counts in each part, just like there's four corners in a box. How does it work? You can follow along with me if you choose. What it does, what it asks you to do is inhale deeply for four counts, hold at the top for four counts, deep exhale for four counts, and then hold at the bottom for four counts. Then repeat as, as many times as possible. You will feel yourself slowing down in that counting, in that intentional breathing. And what I like to say is, you know, there's only about a million different breath meditation works, uh, uh, patterns. You don't like this one. Well, that's what YouTube is for. Go to YouTube, find a different short breath meditation uh, with lots of millions of views and try it out and find one that you like, because learning how to slow your breath down is one of the most powerful ways you can get a, a handle on that feeling of anxiety. Now, how do I know that this works? Well, uh, this is not an experiment, but um, the oldest form of meditation is breath work. And those monks hundreds of years ago did not know the term autonomic nervous system or parasympathetic nervous system or fight or flight, but they did know that coming into slow, deep breathing can calm them down and get them into a meditative state. That is what they knew and they, they um, kind of leveraged for uh, their, their uh, meditation practice. And again, what is, um, what's at stake here? What's at stake is um, learning how to control your level of stress and anxiety, because as I mentioned, long-term chronic stress and anxiety will not only uh, damage parts of the brain. So how it starts is the dendrites of the neurons, particularly in the hippocampus, in the temporal lobe and the prefrontal cortex first start to get damaged. So you get these uh, neurons with, with short stubby dendrites, which are the input structures of the neurons. But with long-term um, uh, um, high levels of stress and anxiety, think uh, PTSD, those cells in the hippocampus, so cells in the prefrontal cortex start to die. Um, um, soldiers with PTSD have been shown to have significantly smaller entire temporal lobes, partially because they are literally shrinking and killing many of their cells in their hippocampus. That is what is at stake. Do you want a big, fat, fluffy hippocampus or do you want a damaged, small hippocampus to help you through your graduate program? Obviously, I want the biggest, fattest, fluffiest hippocampus that I can get. Okay, so that is step one, meditation breath work. I gave you the box breathing, go to YouTube, um, find one. What I recommend is um, find one, practice it when you're not in the throes of an anxiety attack and then pull it out of your back pocket and use it. I love this because it's easy to use, easy to remember the, the box breathing, I mean, and I love it because you can deploy it 
in the middle of an anxiety provoking conversation, whether it be with a colleague, with your advisor, with, with, a, um, uh, with a parent, with a family member, as they're talking and, and causing anxiety, you can start breathing and, and bringing your own anxiety level down. It works, it's effective, and they won't even know you're doing it. Okay. Uh, um, um, step number two, tool number two to turn your vo um, volume of your anxiety down is this one, the power of mindset. Now, this is actually the inspiration for the title of my book, Good Anxiety. I meant it to be um, uh, uh, um, surprising. Like, what, what does she mean by good anxiety? And in fact, this is actually an invitation to start to practice your mindset. If you don't think anxiety can be good, this book is an invitation to start to shift your mindset about anxiety. Now, mindset, also referred to as the placebo effect, was often just uh, um, uh, um, kind of skipped over as nothing, nothing useful to be um, studied. However, recent psychology studies have shown how powerful and how real this effect is. So let me show you my favorite ex experiment of the power of mindset. And this was a study done by uh, the Stanford psychologist, Aliyah Crum, and it was done in hotel workers. And um, another, another way to think about mindset is the brain body connection. We've all heard this term before. What does that mean? I'm not sure. Is it just kind of a, a new age kind of uh, um, function? No, we're actually talking about um, the, the um, uh, um, uh, mindset, the power of mindset. And this is an experiment that illustrates it beautifully. Here's how it worked. They went out and found um, and studied hotel workers in those really big hotels with, with um, tens or, or, or even a hundred floors of, of rooms to clean. And uh, they randomly assigned them into two groups, the experimental group or the control group. In the experimental group, all those hotel workers in the experimental hotels were brought into a room and they were asked, do you exercise regularly? They all said, no, I, I don't have time to exercise. I have this job. I have another job. I don't exercise and, and I don't get enough um, exercise. They all said that in all the hotels being studied. Well, in the experimental ho hotel workers, uh, Aliyah Crum told them that an authority figure, the Surgeon General had analyzed their activity patterns during the day in cleaning the rooms and identified that they are actually working out at a really good level. They have really good level of physical activity. Did you know that? They said, no, I didn't know that. It was a five minute intervention. They sent them off to go back and clean their rooms. In the other group, they didn't tell them anything about the Surgeon General or some innocuous piece of information about, about their job timing or, or hours in their job. That was for the same amount of time they gave them innocuous information and sent off to go back to work. They did nothing, no intervention for the next three months. Three months later, they came back and asked, was there a difference in those hotel workers that were given that information about the Surgeon General versus those that were not? And to their surprise, what they found was the hotel workers that were given the information that level of activity was, was excellent, lost significantly more weight. Their whole metabolic physiology changed because of that information uh, to interpret that because of their change of mindset. Mindset is a belief system. Do you believe that this is true? They shifted from 
I don't get enough exercise. I don't exercise at all. My job is exercising. This uh, led to significantly more weight loss in the, in the experimental group, a significantly better hip to race, hip to waist ratio and um, higher levels of job satisfaction. Um, compared to the experimental workers. So this suggests that your belief, what you believe in your mind, going back to is anxiety good or bad, affects the way your body responds to the rest of the world around that belief system. So I think this is a really, really powerful tool. It's one that needs to be practiced, but those of us with what I call everyday anxiety, um, not the clinical levels of anxiety that require hospitalization, um, but, but the kind of anxiety that I suffer, for example. It comes up all the time, but of course, I'm always trying to deploy my tools, my, my breath work, my mindset. Or is there a different way to think about that thing that is scaring you, that is giving you anxiety? Is there a different way to think about your thesis? that you're writing, your tenure package that you're preparing, that conversation with the chair that you're about to happen. That is the power of mindset. And uh, part of the gift is that uh, those of us with anxiety, we give ourselves lots of different opportunities to practice. And like anything else, practice makes perfect with the kind of mindset shift that will work best for you. You are your best uh, kind of coach in that. And I'm not saying a great therapist or coach can really help you work around this, but this is a powerful tool to turn down the volume of your anxiety. And now we get to my favorite. I saved the best for last. The um, tool that I've really, I've studied this tool the most, and that is the power of physical activity to affect your mood, your affect. Um, exercise can increase positive affect and decrease negative affect. It is truly transformative, um, especially when you think that it is free. I'm not selling you a put pill. You can go out and take a walk right now. So what is that data? Why am I so enthusiastic about this? The best data that I can show you to illustrate why exercise is so powerful for your brain is the following uh, uh, table. This comes from a, re a review that uh, uh, a very talented postdoc and current uh, new assistant professor, Julia Basso, she was a postdoc in the lab when she wrote this paper, um, uh, we wrote together for brain plasticity. And this table is a simplified table from the, from, the, um, from, from the review article that shows you all the neurochemicals that are increasing in the brain after just a single bout of exercise. It shows you all the neurochemicals here in different categories, neurotransmitters, growth factors, hormones. And here it shows you and it, it reports the duration of time that these different neurochemicals or transmitters uh, have, uh, are elevated in the brain after a single workout. You've heard of these neurotransmitters. Would you like dopamine in your brain to uh, be increased for 120 minutes? Noradrenaline increased, serotonin increased also 120 minutes, endorphins going up for at least 20 minutes. Oops, darn. Um, growth factors, growth factors helping uh, different brain areas work better, grow, grow new synapses. Um, uh, the one we know, the growth factor we know the, uh, the most about is called BDNF, also going up a lot. And then you might think, oh no, hormones, um, um, cortisol, that's a bad hormone, right? 
not really. Exercise is a stress. You need, you need fuel to be able to exercise. And what is cortisol doing? It's helping release, it, release those sugars into your blood. And uh, in fact, there is a cortisol paradox that neuroscientists were working on. Why is cortisol when released during exercise doesn't seem to be detrimental for the brain, but if you have high levels of, of cortisol um, um, deployed or released in periods of true stress, that can be debilitating if it goes on for too long. And the answer seems to be there are cofactors that allows the brains to different the brain, your brain, to differentiate between is this an exercise related stress or it is is it a um, is it a a real stress situation? So in this situation, um, uh, cortisol is going up. It, it's it, it's physiological physiologically um, um, normal for it to go up, and it's not detrimental to the brain. So one image that I want to leave you with is that every single time you move your body, and we know that mood is affected in as little as 10 minutes of walking. Can you do that? You don't even have to change your shoes to go for a walk for 10 minutes. 10 minutes of walking can have a significant benefit for your mood state. And the image that I want to leave with you is that every single time you move your body, including just 10 minutes of walking, you are literally giving your brain a neurochemical bubble bath. This bubble bath is changing, sorry, is changing mood. You are increasing positive mood states, you're decreasing negative mood states. It is improving focus and attention. That is the functions of the prefrontal cortex. Um, uh, there, there's significant improvements of your ability to shift and focus right after uh, a workout. You might notice this, that you're, you're more attuned, you're better able to focus after uh, you take that, that great walk before you come and take a test. And finally, the other thing that is significantly improved consistently across many studies is motor reaction time. Of course, your movement is affecting your motor cortex as well. You are better able to respond more quickly. Um, uh, after, uh, after an exercise session than if you had not exercised. Okay. So this is one of the images that I want to leave with you, your bubble bath of neurochemistry, uh, uh, bubble bath of neuro, um, um, uh, neurochemicals. Now it's one thing to hear about these kinds of effects, but it's another one to experience them. And so we're going to do a little experiment right here in the middle of the, um, uh, in the middle of the uh, um, study, and not study, but the, the talk. And I'm going to come back and close my slides. And I'm going to invite everybody, all participants, if you wouldn't mind in the chat, would you please just type in one word that describes how you're feeling in this moment? I don't care what positive, negative, uh, um, what is that one word that describes how you are feeling? in this moment. I think it's uh, um, five o'clock there in, um, uh, in Switzerland. So uh, let's, let's just take some of these, uh, wait for some of these um, questions to come in. Oh, okay, they're coming in Q&A, that's fine. Intrigued for the experiment, good. Anybody else, just type in one quick word, tired. I have to tell you, I've done this hundreds of times since, since the book came out. Uh, whoever typed in tired, you are with the majority. The majority of people that are coming to my talk feel tired. 
Okay, distracted that 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 is also way up there. Drained. Yes, these are all I just support however you are feeling right now. Um, emotional. Yes, I support that as well. That is great. Okay, so we, we, we have a little feeling. And, and if you come up with another word, uh, just uh, type it in. Well, I've just told you that there is something transformational that you can do to change your mood level. And so we are just going to try that together. Okay. And so we are going to do that um, um, in the way that I just uh, just described. Let me just, um, so what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to stand up. First thing I'm going to ask you to do, just stand up. You're all sitting in your in your um, uh, uh, um, uh, kitchens. You're around your dining room table. Just stand up, shake out your arms, and uh, here is the moment where I tell you that I am also a certified exercise instructor. So we, for just two minutes, we're going to move our bodies together to try and get that bubble bath going and see whether it has an effect on that string of words that we just had. So let me just for a moment. Um, 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 go and turn on my computer audio. Okay. So here we go. So I wouldn't be a good exercise instructor if I didn't have music. Okay. All you have to do is do what I do. Say what I say, listen to the music. Four, three, two, one, right, left, right, left, punch it out. Okay, we're gonna add an affirmation. I say, I am strong now. You say it, I am strong now. Again, we are really, really strong. You say it. Ladies, I am Wonder Woman strong. You say it. Wonder Woman strong. Guys, I am Superman strong. You. Okay, we're gonna switch moves. Four, three, two, one. Uppercuts. Right, left, right, left. I am inspired now you say it i am inspired right now you i am inspired now you now last move I am on fire right now. You say it. I am on fire now. You. Done. Okay, shake it out. Enjoy the movement in the middle of the talk. Come back. Oops, sorry, let me turn my music off. Sorry, with this setup, it's a little bit hard for me to hear, hear it while I'm yelling at you. So, <laughs> so hopefully you got the, the benefit. That was literally just two minutes of moving our body. And so I'm going to ask everybody that put in a word last time, 
Just do it again. This is the end of our experiment. Let's see if it has, let's see if it has an effect. Great, okay, that's great, confident, good, happy, good, tired, still tired, that's okay, that's okay. Sometimes sometimes you, it, you need more, you need a different kind, got another happy. So um, I often do this, it's hard to do it uh, across the continent, but I often have people um, um, log in to create an instantaneous word cloud. And in the word cloud, the biggest word is the word that the most people put in. And every single time I've done this, the biggest word before our movement session is tired. People are tired, no matter what time I give the talk, no matter what age group I'm talking to. And afterwards, it is usually inspired um, that we get, but other positive words. So this just gives you a in-lecture um, um, feeling for what just a little bit of movement can do. How can you use that in your life? Well, before a test, before you really have to focus in lab, go for a walk, go for a walk with a friend, go for a walk with your dog, go and, and um, move your body in some way. Uh, go to, if you're going to the gym, go to the gym. But the point is there are so many ways that you can move your body and get, uh, get the benefit of this neurochemical bubble bath. That is such a powerful tool. Okay. So let me go back to my slides. Okay, so we have learned how to turn the volume down on our anxiety with multiple different, uh, um, multiple different approaches. Now, oh, um, you know, I'm going to uh, um, uh, um, uh, flip through uh, this study, which is a long-term study. So uh, I'll just tell you quickly what the, what the effect was. We got low fit people to work out um, significantly more two to three times a week from their um, um, sedentary behavior for three months. And we got changes in their baseline levels, their positive affect baseline levels went up, their motivation to exercise significantly increased, their body attitudes in the exercise group relative to the control group got better. And not only that, their frontal functions, their baseline frontal functions improved their recognition memory. Do you need that for your PhD? Yes, you do. Also your spatial and episodic memory that that significantly improved in the exercise group. That's a little bit more than just a one-off walk, but this is what happens when you give your brain this neurochemical bubble bath for a long period of time on a regular basis. And um, it's, yes, the, the change in neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin are great, but it, that's when those growth factors that were on the list and the um, uh, increased level of that, that's where the, that power of those growth factors come into play. What is the effect? You're seeing them right here. Here are the behavioral effects of changing from sedentary behavior to, uh, to a, this was literally a 45 minute workout two to three times a week. Okay, but that just finishes the power of exercise. I can go on for hours and hours and hours of exercise, but I wanna finish the steps to transform from bad anxiety to good. Step number two, so what's good about turning down the volume of your anxiety? Well, there's, there's you know, obviously you don't feel as anxious, but by doing that and being able to have tools in your back pocket that turns down your anxiety. A very, very important thing that it allows you to do 
is explore those uncomfortable emotions, anxiety, fear, anger. Why? Because um, despite what lots of people say that, you know, follow me and I'll get you happy all the time. We are complex human beings with a huge kaleidoscope of emotions from positive to uncomfortable. And those uncomfortable emotions are not there to be repressed and kicked out the door. They are there for a reason. Again, going back to the protective element, but really they are a warning system. There's a reason why you're worried about your dissertation, about your tenure packet, why it tells you what is of value to you. So by being able to turn down the volume, you're able, you're, you're able to um, um, step back and appreciate those values and uh, kind of keep them or use them as a warning signal. So what does your worry tell you about what is important to you? Instead of just focusing on the worry itself, what is at the heart of that worry? What is um, important about that particular item that is causing you worry? And what can you do in a more active way to address it uh, um, beyond worrying about it? Similarly, anger also comes with anxiety. You just get angry at everybody, everything around that is associated with this topic that's causing your anger. Um, often a lot of these uh, uncomfortable emotions uh, are, are historical in us. And I'll talk about one of my historical uh, emotions, uh, anxieties in, in a little bit. But what is your anger telling you about what you value, what you deal with better with better and worse. It's a means to learn more about yourself. And so many of us just skip over that deep learning and just stay in the uncomfortable emotion without you know, extracting any of the useful information. And finally, what about your fear? Now you might think, oh, well, maybe I've gone to a therapist. Yes, these are the same kinds of things the therapist will help you understand, but many, again, because anxiety is such a wide spectrum, uh, sometimes one just needs a reminder to say, you know, these emotions should not be controlling you. You can learn from these emotions and try and figure out why are they being deployed in you at this time, and then get at the root of the problem rather than staying in the emotion itself. Okay. So that is step number two, uh, that is lean into these uncomfortable emotions, learn from them and learn more deeply about yourself from them. And then finally, I'm gonna get to my favorite part of the book, Good Anxiety. I think this is really the secret sauce of this book. Um, as I was writing it, as I was going through and analyzing my own anxiety as uh, kind of example number one of somebody that, that has um, a pretty high level of, of everyday anxiety. I realized that there were true gifts that came from my anxiety, um, particularly if I was able to get, get those uh, um, volume of the anxiety down so that I could explore those emotions. In fact, I realized that I was starting to make friends with my own anxiety. So let me try and convince you that you also can make friends and can enjoy some of the gifts or superpowers of anxiety. Here are three um, of the six uh, superpowers that I talk about the book. And I start with the one that's kind of easiest to understand. The superpower of productivity. 
everybody in graduate school wants to be super, super, super productive. Okay. And um, often what gets into the, gets in the way of that is um, procrastination, worry uh, that you're not being more productive. And so um, that uh, anxiety um, often, including for me today, often comes in the form of a what if list. What if I don't get my PhD? What if the what if what if my tenure packet isn't um, uh, approved? What if I didn't send a, a, a courteous enough email? These are the thoughts that come into my head right before I'm going to go to sleep. So sleep is about to come, and then bing, all these worries. Like what if I didn't do that? What if I didn't do it well enough? What if what if I just did it all wrong? And so this is where the superpower comes in. And the superpower came from um, a lawyer. It turns out lots of high executives use this superpower already. It is simply flipping the what if list. And this is a, a lawyer uh, that described that you know her high paying law job is because of her anxiety, because she takes each one of those what ifs on her what if list for her case and turns them into a to do. It makes it active. It allows her to, to take action on each one of the worries that helps to dissipate that worry. So this is the other uh, um, tool that I'm going to leave you with. Um, next time you have the what if list, um, come up with two or three or just one thing that you can do to address each one of the problems um, and do it. Not Don't just make the list, but actually do it. Worried about, worried about your um, um, talk that you're gonna give? Ask two people to listen to your talk, to practice and give feedback. Um, maybe one of those people is a very, very seasoned scientist, a senior person. That is the power of the superpower of productivity. You're worried about something, go do something about it. It makes you more productive, makes you more um, uh, action oriented. And it comes from these worries. It comes from your anxiety. Superpower number two is the superpower of flow. Now, flow is a psychological um, state described by the uh, psychologist um, Csikszentmihalyi, and uh, uh, it is somewhat mythical. It doesn't happen all the time. The state of flow is when everything is going right. It's almost like time slows down and you feel like, you know, I'm giving the talk of my lifetime and the questions are amazing and, and I say everything as beautifully as I want. Okay, that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, that is a state of flow. And I knew I wanted to talk about this because there's so much data that anxiety nixes flow. You cannot get into a state of flow if you have anxiety, which is very depressing. Um, and so I knew I wanted to talk about it. How am I gonna talk about it? And um, I, I was inspired in a yoga class that I, I went to while I was writing this book. And I'm going in the yoga class and, and you know, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling more stretchy. I'm doing my downward dogs and my upward dogs. And we finally get to my favorite part of the class, the end of the class. And we go into corpse pose or shavasana. So I'm laying there on the ground, palms up in the perfect position. And I realized, oh my God, I am flowing. There's nobody doing Shavasana as well as I am. I am flowing in Shavasana. Okay, it's not classic flow, which typically involves a skill that took you a long, long time to develop. So it didn't take me that long to develop my Shavasana pose, but I was doing it really well. So it wasn't classic flow that I was finding in my own day. It's what I call micro flow. 
so microflow is um, it's also another version of savoring. What are the things in your life, especially if you're going, if you're creating, you know, you're at the end stages of your um, dissertation, you're, you're going up for tenure. What are the things that you can savor on a regular basis? Let me give you some, some examples. Can you savor that first delicious cup of coffee in the morning and just take a moment, not three hours, a moment to savor that. I made it really well, or I knew the exact place to buy this perfect cup of coffee. Can you savor a, a great bath or a shower that you take? Can you savor something? I, I make this green smoothie for myself in the morning. I savor that recipe that I developed over several years. It's delicious. It feels so healthy. I love it. And once I discovered my flowing in Shavasana, I started to realize that there were so many moments worthy of savoring that I was skipping over. And I started to not skip over them and to savor them. And then I realized that this too was a gift of anxiety. Why? Because um, the, psychological the psychological construct of the negative contrast effect says that the highs and the savoring moments are even more savor worthy when you have the lows of uncomfortable feelings of worry and um, you know the, the normal emotion of fear, worry, and anger, you're never gonna get rid of them with these tools. You're just going to uh, down-regulate them, but they provide you this contrast. So those of us with regular everyday or high levels of everyday uh, anxiety uh, can have a better contrast with those moments of savoring such that it becomes a superpower of really micro flow. So that is, that is the superpower of flow. And I wanna end with my favorite superpower, which is um, a superpower that comes from your anxiety. It's the superpower of empathy. And here I, I go dig back to my most oldest, my oldest form of anxiety is really social anxiety. So not, you know, I became a teacher and a speaker, so not speaking anxiety, but I've always had social anxiety in new situations. Uh, I was a very shy young girl in, in uh, high school and college. And, and while I really wanted to interact in coursework, I was always very academic. I always had this deep fear of asking questions in class. Why? Because I didn't want to be wrong and then humiliated, uh, have these visions of being humiliated in class. Um, but one day I found myself at the front of the classroom. I'd made it all the way through, became a professor. Oh, I'm at the front of the classroom. And what I realized that even that very first day in class, I knew what all those students were feeling. Some of them were asking questions, that's fine. But I knew there were more that had questions that were uncomfortable asking them. So what did I do? I stayed late, I arrived early. I made sure everybody had a chance to answer, for me to answer, to interact with me and have me answer questions. Why? Because I knew I could feel that I had empathy for them. And I did the compassionate thing in making sure they had a good environment to do what I need to do as a teacher, which is to answer their questions. It became my teaching superpower. You might think, well, I'm not a teacher. Well, that doesn't matter because all you need to do is go back and think about your either most common or your oldest anxiety, like, like the social anxiety was for me. You know what it feels like inside. You know what it looks like in the situation. And this gives you a beautiful gift because you can turn that to the outside and give somebody else a hand. 
look around, you know, uh, um, metaphorically at all of your colleagues, they're having the same form of anxiety, your student colleagues, your faculty colleagues, your postdoc colleagues, can you um, um, kind of reach out I'm not saying become their best friend, just give a help, helping hand, a, a nice, compassionate word. And I love this one the best because I can't think of something that we need more in this world today than higher levels of empathy. And finally, um, uh, we know that acts of empathy, feeling for other people and acts of compassion increase dopamine in the brain. So I like to say, come for the empathy, stay for the dopamine. It gives you, you know, 360 degrees of, uh, of benefit. So I'll just uh, summarize uh, the three steps to achieve good anxiety that I talked about. Step one is learning for you at this point in time in your life. What are the best tools that I have to turn the volume down? We can all learn how to do it, particularly with everyday anxiety. Step number two, uh, once the volume is turned down, turn, tune into those uncomfortable emotions. Don't ignore them, learn from them. Learn where they came from, learn what they're warning you against, and that can give you interesting new ideas about how to address them, including how to shift your mindset towards them in a better way. And step number three is use some of these tricks and tips that I provided to turn your own anxiety into your own superpower. And with that, my goal is, you know, as I develop these approaches, I of course use them on myself. And what I found is in leaning into your anxiety and turning the volume down and leaning into those uncomfortable emotions and trying to use them as a superpower, I ended up with really a more fulfilling, a more creative, and a less stressful life overall. And that is what I wish for every single one of you, my fellow academics on this call, I don't care whether you're graduate students, postdocs, or uh, fa fellow faculty members, uh, that is why I wrote this book. And I hope you can use it, uh, the tips that we've gone over today in that spirit. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Suzuki, for your excellent uh, demonstration as well and an excellent talk. So uh, we've got a few minutes left, uh, just a little bit. So um, I would like to ask a question. These uh, approaches that you've given us, they're uh, really excellent for anxiety. So I was wondering whether some of them can be also useful in the chronic stress situation. Can we kind of think approaching these kind of stresses in a similar fashion? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that uh, turning the volume down is kind of a, a dual approach to anxiety specifically, but also to stress. And um, I'm a big proponent of self-experimentation. And, um, you know, I, th that's basically all of my books are applying what I have learned and what I know about neuroscience to regulate my own anxiety, my own stress response, and, um, and what worked. And everything that worked is supported by science. And so what I recommend is that you get experimental on yourself for your own stress, 
for your own anxiety. What I've tried to do in my books and in all my lectures is lay out some of the most, you know, um, there are some wacky things out there. Of course, I've laid out the things that have the most scientific approach to them. So um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of self-experimentation that I do. And, and so I have lots of tools at my fingertips because I'm always trying to find uh, good and creative and engaging ways to, um, to, to turn that stress and anxiety down. And uh, what about too much exercise? Did you notice that there is a threshold that you, you should not pass? Yeah, you know, that's a really, really common question. And what I found is that, um, well, actually I could, I could now, I'm so glad you asked that question. I could now address that question with actual data from my lab because uh, a study that I didn't uh, show in my talk is one where we took mid-fit people. So these are people that are exercising, you know, good 30, at least 30 minutes, two to three times a week. And we asked them to up their exercise as much as they wanted. And they got as many free classes at the spin, you know, indoor cycling center as they, they wanted. And um, so we had people that were real go-getters and they went up from two to three times a week to seven times a week. They were going to spin class and everything in between. So we had this, this great uh, um, continuum. And uh, you can ask, so, so the answer is I went up, uh, I have data for up to seven times a week. And uh, what I found is uh, that every drop of sweat counted up to seven times a week, that the more you exercise, the more benefit we saw on your mood effect, on your cognitive effects. Do I think there is an upper threshold? Yes, I do. But I think that you really have to get up to uh, kind of Olympic level training where you're pushing your body to, to points that, that it physically cannot go. There are very few of us that are able to, like, I give up way, way before that. I'm just gonna be honest and say that. So theoretically, the answer to your question is, I believe, I'm sure there's there's always a threshold to things like this, but it's it's very difficult for the typical person to, to reach that threshold. Excellent question from our audience. Okay, so for the next one, would you recommend to do incantations regularly or at the moment then you need them? So, you know, um, the, the affirmations that I used uh, in the workout, that's just, I, I should uh, give credit where credit is due. I didn't make up this, this workout. This is a workout called Intensati that was developed by an amazing fitness instructor named Patricia Moreno, and it combines physical movements with affirmations. And I just do it because I got hooked on it. I think it's fun. It's a little bit embarrassing and, and it gets everybody kind of in, in the mood. Um, I, uh, to tell you the truth, we've never done a, uh, that's not true. We, we did a study using intensati in uh, traumatic brain subjects and saw significant effects on mood. Um, but uh, the most data is on the effects of meditation that typically doesn't have, you know, verbal incantations with it. And, and that is, um, that is, what, uh, that is uh, uh, what, what's shown to be effective. But to get to the question, should I do it in the moment? I recommend that whatever form of breath work, or you can try intensati uh, as well. Um, it's harder to do that without everybody knowing that you're doing intensati. It's easier to do the, the breath work. I, I recommend that you, you practice it. 
and then you, you practice it in a non-stressful situation. So it's familiar, you know what it does, you know how it feels. And so then you can pull it in. It becomes much more effective at that moment than if you try and do it for the first time or just the second time um, when you're in the middle of a panic attack. Okay, so, and then to finish off the last question, what is the most anxious time in the day? And can I sleep through it somehow? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great question. I think the answer really, really, you know, differs for different people. There are people that are morning people, uh, afternoon people, evening people. And, you know, um, this is where the self-experimentation works. I think it's hard if you're you know, on a regular nine to five schedule to sleep through a, a noontime high anxiety time. And in those situations, um, I think using some of the tools uh, are, is, the best, uh, is the best approach <laughs> to get, get through that. Uh, just another question about our, our academia as well. So how did you manage anxiety during your pre-tenure period and how would you manage it now? Yeah. So um, I've written a lot about this in my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, which was kind of a science um, memoir. And um, I, the answer is I didn't manage it. Uh, my strategy was very single-minded and might be familiar to some of you. It was just put my head down and work as hard as I could until I got my desired result, which was to get tenure. And so, you know, it seemed it, I had been using that strategy since college. I used it in college. I did it in graduate school. Oh, I was starting to get a little tired in, uh, in, as a faculty member. And, uh, and, and it showed because I found myself 25 pounds overweight because in putting my head down and only working hard, not just 25 pounds overweight, but I had no friends in New York City because all I did was work. And uh, so I do not recommend that. Uh, it was the perfect example of being unbalanced and not paying attention to you know, your body as a whole. And so um, what I recommend is what I'm doing now, which is um, kind of using time to gain more time. My, my simple-minded approach was that I'll just get rid of everything else on my schedule and just work as long as I can during the day. I'll go home, I'll, I'll eat, uh, uh, really delicious food because I'm in New York and then I'll go back to work, which then you can understand why I gained 25 pounds. Um, so instead uh, of trying to work all those hours, I, I, I schedule time each day, each day for a meditation session. In fact, my schedule is I wake up, I do a meditation and then I immediately go into a 30 minute cardio, uh, cardio workout. I always do it first thing in the morning so it never gets kicked out. Uh, and then I modulate the time. Sometimes I have to get there early. And so, but I always do it just shorter or up to my 30 minutes. I have breakfast and then, then I'm ready for my day. I'm, I have given my brain this great bubble bath right before I need to use it. And um, not only that, but uh, I, uh, I, I stimulate, I find myself much more creative um, these days because I let myself enjoy creative outlets. Um, I love Broadway. I love Broadway plays, Broadway musicals. I go to that. I have many more friends than I did when I was trying to get tenure uh, because I, I give myself that space and that just um, that joy that it brings into my life um, translates directly to the joy that I bring to my work, the joy that I bring, the joy and the creativity that I bring to my science. And so it's wrong. I, I say that my early uh, um, 
thesis was absolutely wrong. That was not the best way to get, uh, I got through, I got my thesis, I got tenure, but I think I would have, I certainly would have been happier. I think I would have been more creative and who knows what would have happened if I had learned how to apply those approaches much earlier than I did. Excellent. Well, that was absolutely brilliant talk and all of us learned so much today and we will take away so many excellent tips. So thank you so much again, Dr. Wendy Suzuki for your talk and thanks uh, to everybody who joined uh, uh, today and uh, please join us for the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. So much to reflect on and so many tools, uh, empowering tools. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.